to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Carolyn. And today on the show, we're talking about so many issues that I can relate to, Caroline. I bet they resonate with you, and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners deal with this as well. Issues of the workplace. Yeah, no matter where you work, issues about burnout and boundaries really affect us all. That feeling of kind of spinning your tires as you go through the week rather than, you know, driving smoothly on through your days. Exactly. And also that on top of navigating gender discrimination and gender biases in the workplace that so many women and especially women of color face. And we're going to talk to in just a little bit a friend of the show, Emily Ayers, who is the CEO and founder of Bossed Up, which is an organization she started specifically to help women navigate those burnout issues and merge what's happening in your work life with your home life. Because as we talked about in our athleisure episode, the lines are, there is no line anymore. There is no line. And so you start to feel like, okay, I've got to answer emails at 11 p.m. or I have to be expected to send emails at 11 p.m. And rather than focusing on maybe limiting your work to a certain set number of hours and focusing on quality work, it's really easy for a lot of people to end up in the busy trap of like, oh, I've just got to be busy and I have to look like I'm working really hard. And that whole looking like I'm working really hard thing isn't necessarily to impress other people. It might be just something that you've internalized within yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think that we, especially if you work in digital at all, we are in a culture, a workplace culture of busyness. I mean, I hear this conversation from not only people I work with here at How Stuff Works, but also friends of mine who routinely talk about, you know, and I'm included in this group of like, oh, I was up until X o'clock working and working. I X mean, o'clock I, is my favorite hour to stay up until. <laughs> X o'clock. Yeah. When you're working at X o'clock, you know, it's pretty rough. Um, but listen, Caroline, I got to tell you that I was guilty of doing the whole like busyness kind of thing uh, to you earlier today. Earlier today. Earlier today. Indeed. You asked me how I was doing and I just said, oh, busy, <laughs> busy, which I mean, <laughs> She did look scared when she said it, if that helps set the scene. I mean, granted, my Outlook calendar today is crazy, is horrifying. Sure. Yes. And legitimately, I am busy. But as, as I was thinking about what we were going to talk about today and these issues of uh, work and burnout and all of that, I was like, oh, that's that is part of the trap of kind of kicking up that dust of your own busyness to well, sort of let everyone else know what's going on. So right after this conversation happens, Kristen and I had to dip into a meeting, which is one of the Outlook things that she's referring to. And as our colleagues were talking, I swear I was listening to what they were saying. But as they were talking, I started to think like, well, Kristen and I basically have the same Outlook calendar because we are like work partners. <laughs> so I was like, wait, should I worry? Should I be worried? Should I be more stressed than I am? I mean, I'm pretty like, like mid stress, like, but my constant state of anxiety is like pretty high. And like, I had this conversation with my therapist. And so like, I started going like spiraling in that meeting and I was like, you know what? 
not going to worry about it. I might not get lunch today. I might have to eat dinner at four o'clock because that's just how that's going to shake out. But, uh, you know, maybe I maybe this day, this is the day that I'm going to release all of that busyness, anxiety trap stuff. But see, that's how contagious this stuff is. Yeah. It took me saying one word busy in response to your question, how are you, for that to then set off a mental spiral in your head. Well, it's like, if Conger's worried, should I be worried? (laughs) Well, and the thing is, too, if we we expand beyond the world of C and C. Wait, there's a bigger world out there? I know. Surprisingly, beyond, you know, the podcast studio, there is another world. Um, And it does seem like the research tells us that women are more prone to overwork and burnout. Yeah, that's coming from research from this group called McKenzie and Company. And they found that not only are women more likely to burn out, but they are less likely to climb that corporate ladder, which to me is the definition of wheel spinning. You're so busy, you're less likely to take a break than a dude, but you're not then climbing the ladder. And now I'm realizing that I'm comparing wheels and ladders and you can't drive up a ladder. Is this a game of shoots and ladders? Yes. So does that help this make sense? If we say yes? I don't know. I don't know either. (laughs) I think the fact that I don't know means no. (laughs) Let's introduce Emily a little bit for our listeners and then dive into that conversation. Yeah. So Emily's got a fascinating story. She talks about how her, quote, overachieving sprint through the semester habits that served her well in college left her spinning her wheels and exhausted. And it's that drive, though, that led her to start this company, because once she focused on, whoa, I feel burned out and out of control. Oh, wait, this isn't just me. This is so many women. How can I help other women? And the academic background she's bringing into this was a focus on the intersections of women in politics, gender equity theory, uh, feminist theories, and how those function in the everyday lives of women. So she has all sorts of stuff mom never told you related info ready to share with us. So let's now transition this conversation we've been having about women in the workplace, ambition, and burnout to our chat with Emily Ayers, founder and CEO of Bossed Up. Emily, thank you so much for joining Caroline and me today. My pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Huge stuff you should know. And Stuff Mom Never Told You Fan. Excellent. Well, I have a feeling that you are about to have a lot of Stuff Mom Never Told You fans. <laughs> um, so could you tell our listeners who you are and what you and Bossed Up are all about? Absolutely. So I'm Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. We are a training company based in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., And we help women navigate career transition and beat burnout. And frankly, this whole endeavor, this adventure that has been launching my own company is really personal to me. I burnt out very quickly as a young woman in the workplace working as a campaign organizer on behalf of President Obama. Uh, Back in 2009, I helped uh, pass health reform as the youngest state director in the nation with Organizing for America. And over the course of a few years of working my butt off, frankly, for causes and organizations I believed in, my whole personal life was falling apart. 
And it came to a head when I realized that if I didn't change my strategies, if I didn't change the way in which I was working, which frankly wasn't working at all, that I was not going to be able to be in this fight for the long haul, that I needed to stop operating on what I call a semester sprint mentality and start really investing in my sustainable success. Well, so you talk on your website about this martyrdom mindset that women are susceptible to. And how does that play into burnout? And do you think that there's a generational difference between older women and younger women? Oh, that's a really good question. So first of all, like you two, I'm a huge research junkie. So I absolutely love where social science comes into play in all of this. And there's a lot of research we can talk about around burnout and gender. But frankly, it's lacking. The research is really lacking around uh, intergenerational differences with burnout and whether or not women are more susceptible to burnout. There's a lot of um, research out there that's a little bit closer to the issue that does show some gender differences between how men and women experience burnout. For example, women are shown to experience the exhaustion part of burnout, whereas men are more likely to start their, you know, challenges with burnout with things like cynicism and feeling a lack of effectiveness or or detachment from their work. Um, And frankly, we should back up here a little bit just to talk about what burnout really is. What do I mean when I say burnout? Because so often we, um, you know, sort of colloquially use burnout to say, I'm just having a really long week and I'm totally burned the heck out. When in reality, burnout is a serious disorder. Um, that is characterized by a state of chronic stress and can lead to things like exhaustion, cynicism, detachment. And what's so scary about burnout is it starts to make you feel less engaged in things that used to really light you up and really set you on fire, things that you used to be all jazzed about. Uh, And this can obviously lead to more serious psychological disorders with depression and anxiety, which, as we know, is the topic you two have shared a lot about and, and covered deeply on this podcast, and frankly, is, you know, an epidemic that I think a lot of us women in particular have struggled with over the years. So what have you learned from your research and your personal experience um, in terms of how we might set ourselves up for burnout? Like you mentioned, the semester sprint, uh, the martyrdom mindset, kind of what are those precursors? Yeah, let's talk about those because I I have discovered through trial and error in my own life and through working with hundreds of women now across the country and the, the growing body of research that exists out there, as well as the fact that I should say we're in the process of securing more funding to do our own research on this matter and really dive deeper into gender differences with burnout. Um, but to me, the martyrdom mindset is this troubling framework that brings many of us, men and women alike, uh, to burnout. And the martyrdom mindset is super simple. It essentially says to us, or it's a presupposition that we carry, especially here in the United States, that says success requires suffering, right? It's this underlying assumption that in order to be quote unquote successful, whatever that means, that we need to suffer, that we need to work ourselves to the bone. And I honestly think that this goes back to our roots with the Protestant work ethic here in the United States. Um, but it is sometimes subtly communicated in our family life and how we are raised and whether we're praised for achievements or effort. And sometimes it's not so subtle, 
For instance, this past weekend, I had the great pleasure of heading back to the eighth annual Yale Women's Leadership Conference called We Women. And I delivered a keynote address on sustainable success, the martyrdom mindset, all this stuff that we're discussing. And it was well received. And then I went into a panel immediately afterwards just to sit in and hear some of what other incredible women that they had speaking there. And one of the uh, really highly respected career coaches who had been a lawyer initially, but turned to career coaching was sitting there talking about um, talking to a, a room full of undergrads and literally said, you know, in those first couple years out of college, quote, you need to work yourself to death. Oh, and, and she said she heard it, right? She heard herself and said, listen, I don't know how else to say it, but like, that's what it takes. And I just was sort of flabbergasted and horrified sitting in the back of the row. And what was ironic is how afterwards she came up to me and praised me on my message. And we talked about how many core values we share and beliefs that we share. And so there's this real cognitive dissonance in the United States, especially where we believe that we all deserve health and happiness, but we also fundamentally believe that career success is incongruent with a happy, healthy lifestyle. I'm thrilled to see that a growing body of research in organizational psychology and personal development is showing that happier, healthier workers are more productive and focused and frankly, better for the bottom line. So we are at a critical change moment in the world, grappling with things like mass automation and globalization in which we have to make a choice about our values, especially here in the United States. But if we value workers truly, if we truly believe that people should be able to be productive to achieve their full potential and to live a comfortable and reasonable, happy, healthy lifestyle, then we have to make big changes in terms of how our organizations and institutions and how we individually operate in turn in that sort of striving for success, uh, each and every one of us. So I like to focus on the personal level and I'm happy to get more specific in terms of what that means. So do you see your work and the work of Bossed Up as sort of undoing this culture of busyness that we see so many think pieces about lately. You know, oh, everybody in America is so busy and we're so proud of how busy we are and we brag about our busyness. But at the end of the day, A, are we really as busy as we say we are? And B, are we really trying to be proud of just working ourselves to death like that one woman said? So so do you feel like the work you're doing is counteracting that? Totally and completely. And it's always been my goal to sort of help others see that there's a different avenue to success. Um, and I think it started with my, my own personal experience, right? I was going through life as a young woman with a big leadership role, feeling stressed about my work life, but furthermore, also finding myself falling into the traditional caretaker roles that society really conditions us women to assume. And what that meant for me is that I was... I found myself in a relationship with a brilliant, hardworking man who also struggles with alcoholism. And so all of a sudden, there I am, 22, 23 years old, big job, living with this man I loved and having to feel responsible for taking care of my boss and my boyfriend and my volunteers and the causes and campaigns I was working on. And everybody else came first except me. Everyone else came before me. And so I, I realized how untenable 
a strategy that was or how unsustainable a strategy that kind of lifestyle and framework and mindset really was. And to me, I had to get out of this pattern of behavior that I'd been taught my entire life to be nice. Frankly, it came to a head when I hit total rock bottom. I was so tired of being tired and feeling inefficient and totally struggling with burnout to the point where I was stopped at a stoplight, right? I was on my alma mater's campus, Brown University, driving through since I was organizing politically there. Uh, and I watched a bunch of college students roll their bags home for Thanksgiving break. And something inside me was breaking at that very moment because all I wanted was permission to go home, to relax, to sort of take a break and not feel 24-7 tethered to my work, to my responsibilities, and to caring for everyone else around me. And it was that moment when I realized I needed to change my thinking. I needed to change my approach radically. And I started hitting the books like I did as a student, like I always have. And one quote that always came back to me was from feminist author Audre Lorde, who says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It's self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. And so that's really at the crux of what I do at Boss Up is I've created the conditions to replicate the same acceleration that I experienced in my life when I changed my strategies and my approach for many other women across industries, but primarily women who are facing inflection points in their careers, forks in the road, navigating transition points because they have decided to bring themselves to that transition point either by saying, I'm done with this career, I'm done with this job, or I'm in a new place, in a new city, I'm starting over, or women who have found themselves at a fork in the road they didn't ask for. You know, the 28-year-old divorcee, the, you know, 33-year-old career woman who is navigating the rocky terrain that is having a child in the United States while wanting to work full-time and on an advanced career path. Lord knows we can't do this alone as individuals. Obviously, I think the big asterisk here and the elephant in the room in all of these conversations is that we need organizational change. We need political change, policy change. This is not something individual women can can do overnight and definitely not by ourselves and not just women, right? This is a conversation that absolutely requires our male counterparts to be involved in. It makes so much sense in terms of needing that organizational change for companies to catch up to these needs that we have. But I'm wondering how this also relates to the increasing economy of freelancers and entrepreneurs who, like you, are people who are essentially becoming their own bosses. Totally. I love this question, Kristen. I was actually at the United States Capitol not too long ago, a few months ago, was with the Women's uh, Economic Forum rolling out a new agenda for, I believe they said, like the new women's economic agenda. And throughout this conversation, it talked about how employers and employees need to take better care of one another and how we need better structures for workers' rights and protections from a federal level, from a union level. And I raised my hand at the back of the room. I think I was obviously out of place, first of all, uh, as one of the much younger people in the room. And I raised my hand and said, you know, hi, I'm Emily. I'm a millennial. 
I started my own business for the flexibility that it affords me, but also for lots of other reasons, of course. What, you know, how do we fit into this equation? And the head of the AFL-CIO was there. Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts kicked it off. And I asked this question and not those two folks in particular, but on the whole, their response was, well, there's so few of you. What? That it's, it's, (laughs) yeah, that there aren't that many freelancers and entrepreneurs. And so like, that's kind of a, you know, not central to this whole plan. And so that shocked me as being incredibly inadequate. And I, I, I sort of wonder, okay, who is representing the interests of workers who are less likely to stay in one place for 25 years at a time, AKA all of us. Right. And so this is, in my opinion, as someone who got my start in politics, got my start as an advocate on behalf of workers' rights, and especially through the healthcare fight, advocated for those individuals like me who were going to be kicked off of mom and dad's insurance pretty soon. So when I stopped being a political organizer, I got back on my parents' insurance, thanks to Obamacare, until I was 26 years old. And I started my business that same year. And on January 1st, when I lost my parents' insurance, even though it was extended thanks to Obamacare, I was in the first class of people who were enabled to enroll as an individual in the uh, in the healthcare marketplace for group rates. So thanks to Obamacare, it enabled me to start my business with the security of having health insurance. That's the kind of social safety net that more of us need, just not for health insurance alone. Let's talk about retirement packages. Let's talk about, you know, workers' rights. And there is some action being taken with the freelancers union, although I'm not terribly familiar with those folks. But, um, here at Bossed Up, we enable women to be better advocates for themselves in a world and in an economy in which we no longer have the same advocates that our grandparents had fighting for them. So how how can women be better advocates for themselves and get unstuck from those jobs that in which they might feel like I do have to work myself to death? That's such a great point, Caroline, because I'm actually thinking of young women in particular. I was doing a little bit of research and sort of going over um, the case for burnout prevention recently and, and was reminded of that case not too long ago in which a 21-year-old Wall Street intern actually died after working three consecutive days and nights in a row um, due to an epileptic seizure complications that some have tied to exhaustion. I would certainly tie to exhaustion, although there's been a huge case against, or there's been huge interests um, pointed at countering that, you know, connection. But it finally caused us to wake up a little bit and maybe acknowledge that internships, especially those that are unpaid, uh, you know, should be outlawed from working people to the bone. And in this case, working yourself to death was very literal. And so I think the step one is we have to stop perpetuating the martyrdom mindset, the whole semester sprint mentality of I'm just going to work my tail off now because after finals, I can take a break. We have to make sure that our young people who graduate from college recognize that the same skills that get you an A in college, like perfecting and performing for others and pleasing others, those skills, which we women have mastered, by the way 
are not the same skills that get you ahead in the real world. Not necessarily. And so first, giving ourselves permission to ask ourselves, what do we want? What is our vision for our lives? Creating a safe identity workspace is the language that the Harvard Business Review used in a 2013 cover article from their September magazine that started to unpack what's holding women leaders back, some of the invisible barriers, as they call them, uh, that perpetuates uh, sexism, frankly, sexism 2.0, which they call second generation gender bias in the workplace. And so the first is to create an environment in which you can come in and redefine yourself, define your identity, really work to create an identity that reinforces what you want and gives yourself ownership over your own life. Now that it sounds a little fluffy. Like I hear it, right? It sounds sounds like a lofty goal. Yeah. I'd love to be able to (laughs) figure that out. It's a a challenging thing to do, but it's something that we've created in, in our programs and really all it requires. First of all, definitely read that great article. Um, it's the best article I've ever read on describing the current status of sexism in the workplace. But two, it really requires a place where you can get clear on your audacious goals. Author Jim Collins says that we all need big, hairy, audacious goals. And he's talking about corporate goals, but I address that just as, uh, equally important for individuals. We need crazy, big, audacious dreams, visions for our lives that can propel us forward. And then we need a space where we can have women or people, really anyone who supports you, to reinforce your sense of your, to reinforce your ability to actually make that vision a reality. And so first it comes down to giving yourself permission to dream really big. And the second part of that equation is is learning to be better advocates for actually making that stuff happen. Because if we don't advocate for what we want, inertia will fill that void and other people will tell us what we deserve, quite frankly. And so the biggest concrete skill that I think is so critically important for women to develop is assertive communication. And there's been a lot written on assertive communication And that's a big part of almost every training and workshop and online program that we deliver at Boss Up. But basically, it starts by understanding the difference between assertive, what it means to be assertive, and aggressive. Since very often those two words are confused and used interchangeably in our, uh, in our society. And so the first thing I always say, and this is so important, it's in our manifesto. It's in the Boss Up manifesto that we came up with that basically describes what it means to be a boss in my universe and what it means to be the boss of your own life. And really assertive means that you're forthright about what you want and your needs and your rights while considering the rights and needs and wants of others around you. Being aggressive is similar but different. Being aggressive means you are forthright about your wants and needs and desires, but without regard for the rights and wants and needs of others, period. So it sounds like the big difference there is empathy. Yeah, which unfortunately is subjective <laughs> in almost every example, especially in the workplace. But I'll give you I'll give you an example of how this is such a critical difference. One of my advisory board members here at Bostop is Dr. Lucy Gilson, who is the head of the MBA program at UConn and works with the women's MBA program and helps 
spearhead the Gino Ariema Women's Leadership Conference every year. And she got a call from an academic higher up in her sort of world who was calling about a colleague of hers, a woman professor who was up for a promotion. And this higher up of hers wanted to get Lucy's opinion on this colleague. And she said, you know, her, or he, the director asked Lucy what she thought about her colleague by saying, we've heard great things from her students. She publishes all the right papers. She's peer reviewed. You know, we think she's a really hard worker, but we've heard from some of her colleagues. She can be a little aggressive. (laughs) And ding, ding, ding. There's the magic word, right? So Lucy, who has actually trained and delivered some of our Boston bootcamp training on this very subject, busted out one of the slides from Boston bootcamp and said, well, hold on a second there. Let's, Let's talk about what you mean here. Do you mean aggressive? And she read in the definition or do you mean assertive? And she read in the definition there again. And he said on the other line of the phone, she said the, the line went silent and she was really kind of worried that she'd misstepped or said something wrong. He said, wait, 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 can you say that one more time? I'm writing that down <laughs> because far too often we just don't hear about that difference and we don't give credit to women who are being assertive uh, as opposed to aggressive because, and I'm sure you two know this. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have felt this in practice when women are assertive we are less likable by men and women alike. We are perceived as cold. We are perceived as far nastier things that start with the letter B and it's not boss, right? <laughs> and so, you know, over the past 30 years, social scientists have picked up on that inverse correlation for women. When women are assertive, the assertiveness goes up. We see the likability factor go down. When men are assertive, that is in line with what we've been socially conditioned to expect from men as aggressive leaders or as assertive leaders. And so their likability remains unharmed when men are assertive. And so it's it's a really tough tightrope that we're all tap dancing on as women who want to be leaders because assertiveness is essential to getting stuff done. It's essential to leadership and it's essential to what I call self-leadership. It's essential to being the boss of your own life, to drawing healthy boundaries, to demanding what you're worth to asking for what you need to be successful. So what is, what do we as women especially do with that likability piece? Do we just throw it out the window and march ahead or what? I mean, that is the million dollar question right there, Kristen. And it's, it's the problem that fuels me personally. And it's, it's the reality that drives us all crazy, rightfully so. And here's the thing. I I actually turned to this brilliant video from Nicki Minaj, who describes what it feels like in, in reality to be, you know, compared to Lil Wayne, you know, her male, basically mentor in the hip hop world who can come in and demand whatever he requires, demand what he needs and say, you know, of course you need to deliver for me because anything less is unacceptable. And when Nikki comes in and does the same thing or has, you know, exhibits the same kind of assertive behavior, she's called a diva or a bitch, right? She's not everything to everyone. And so while we're not all pop stars and we don't have the same problems as Nicki Minaj, well, uh, speak for yourself, Emily. I don't know. <laughs> True. Fair. Fair point. I don't want to, I don't want to 
speak on behalf of anyone. Podcast here. life is pretty glamorous. Okay. I can imagine. They better treat you right over there. Um, <laughs> But while it's not always the same, we all experience that double bind. And so two things. One, the more we talk about this and how in, innate, but also um, unintentional this kind of second generation gender bias is, we raise awareness and we change awareness when we talk about these issues. And so one of the key components to second generation gender bias, which ex- which delivers double binds like this is that no one is essentially being malicious here. There's no malintent required for these perceptions to persist. So a, we got to call them out because the more we raise awareness on them, the more we can all check ourselves, men and women, and just ask ourselves, are we really upset with her because she's being, you know, mean or is she being assertive? Can we start to parse through perception a little bit more? And the second is, yeah, to go ahead and be assertive anyway, because leadership requires risk taking. And I, this isn't a popular opinion of mine, but you are not there to make everybody like you, right? Like you have to put your leadership purpose over perception sometimes. And no one does that better than Hillary Clinton. You know, she goes up to make a speech about how, you know, she's and the secretary of state has traveled to more countries than anyone, anyone in held that office in the past has done before. And the headlines are about the scrunchie that she's wearing. Right. Like sometimes there's not more that you can do to control how others will perceive you. And while I'm not saying that to make anyone feel like a victim or anyone to feel helpless in the matter, um, you know, putting your purpose over others perception of you can be a really liberating thing. And, you know, I'm not one to say not to be strategic about it, but also to cut yourself some slack because we don't all get it right all the time. In fact, I would say no one does. I love your ideas about approaching both your personal and professional life like a boss and really dedicating some carved out time to taking care of yourself and also taking care of work. And I'm interested to know how you feel like that approach can perhaps change our outdated ideals of what a a good office worker is? I love that question because the reality is that I learned this vernacular by reading the book Overwhelmed by Bridget Schulte, which came out not too long ago. And it's a really good um, rundown in a very well-researched way to describe how we got to where we are today in this overwhelmed uh, workplace and, and current status of America in general. And what she says is that the modern American workplace is designed around what we know as the quote, ideal worker. And this ideal worker is a myth. <laughs> this ideal worker is from 1950 and it's a man and he goes to work all day and can totally focus on what's happening in front of him because there's no digital life to worry about. And he has someone at home, a.k.a. his wife, who's holding down the home front. And so this worker, who's the ideal worker for whom our workplaces are still too often designed, um, you know, doesn't have to worry about dry cleaning or daycare or dinner or, you know, taking a nap. You know, they're well rested. We assume so many things about our workers that is, that is no longer based in reality. So I'm encouraged by the changing um conversation here 
we have organizations like the Family Story Project that's headed up by one of my other board members, Nicole Dursey, who's really taking a policy approach to say, hold up, let's talk about what an American family unit looks like today. Let's talk about the growing female breadwinner population. Let's talk about uh, stay-at-home dads some more. We saw the NFL commercials, The Dad Do, I thought was absolutely brilliant. Wait, we're seeing different kinds of family arrangements being reflected finally in our national conversation. And just barely are we seeing companies begin to adapt. So Google has dry cleaning services and a cafeteria for its workers so that they can actually worry about the work that they're there to do, right? We know that the Huffington Post has nap rooms so that people can sign up for a rejuvenating half-hour nap without shame, right? Sanctioned by everyone there because creating new norms in our workplaces is the challenge of leadership today. And it's financially in their best interest because of things like retention and leadership development. And so I think it starts with advocating for what we individually need to be successful. And I think that starts with our, you know, psychological research on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like what do we actually need to be fully functioning when we go into the office? We need security. We need a roof over our heads. We We need rest. We need food, right? These are basic needs that I think we've taken for granted. I know I did. When I first entered the workplace, I felt like there was never an end to the workday. I was constantly on. And I found myself going from being a college athlete to not having any form of regular exercise in my life for about three years there. And I was working right through my lunch break every day. And I was chronically underslept. And I think that is a normal, almost prideful in a really demented way, uh, stereotype for the career person, whether it's a career woman or man. And so when we can individually admit to ourselves that that is not the best way to be our best selves, that starts a conversation in which we can actually assert ourselves and demand what we need to be successful. And then I think, you know, this call me naive because one one person alone can't do this, but I think that if enough of us get together and say, these are the companies we are willing to work for, they are willing to invest in their workers in a way that invests in their sustainable success, not our short-term efforts, then I think the market has to change. Whether that requires you know, public policy and intervention from a regulatory standpoint or not uh, is to be determined. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I'm also happy to see more companies not only paying attention to working parents, but also working single people because we are doing a lot on on our own as well. Um, But I also wanted to ask you, um, because I know that you have looked into this, how the picture changes for women of color, because, Mm -hmm. you know, we have layers of discrimination, you know, that, um, that they're walking into the office facing that white ladies like us might not experience so much. Absolutely. And this is such an important question because to me, feminism can't exist without intersectional feminism, right? If we're not talking about women's rights with a framework that acknowledges that not all women, not every woman's experience is the same, then we're just kidding ourselves and we're being naive. And here at Bossed Up, what I am candid about in every one of our trainings 
which frankly, I think it's also important to note that we have women of color doing this work, right? Not just here at Boss Up, but we work in concert with other organizations that are tackling this um, with racial diversity at top of mind. But the first thing to acknowledge is that that inverse correlation between assertiveness and likability is even worse for women of color. They have to contend with the black angry woman trope, right? Women of color have a lot more uh, perception challenges to, to tap dance on a tightrope with. And it's it's important to acknowledge the differences in, in experience first. And then the second part of this equation is acknowledging that the gender wage gap and the gender leadership gap both are are more dramatic for women of color. And so first and foremost, the challenges that are faced by women are different across the spectrum. And so intersectional feminism is all about looking at gender diversity with a lens of how that intersects with racial discrimination and discrimination based on gender identity and sexual orientation and ability and lots of other uh, shades to the discriminatory palette that we have to choose from in the United States and in the world, frankly. The second thing to acknowledge is that what I see contributing to women's burnout most dramatically is what is called role overload. Role overload is when we feel pulled in competing directions in which we are facing multiple demands for our limited time and energy and resources. And we have to acknowledge that different families look differently, right? Different people have others to care for, have a variety of demands that are placed on our time and energy. And that's not the same for all of us. That's certainly not the same for the Lena Dunham characters that we see in girls, as opposed to the come up stories that we hear from in the hip hop world, right? Demands placed on us financially, emotionally, um, you know, based on time and relationships look very different across the spectrum of what different women's lives look like. And I think it's an important thing to acknowledge and be sensitive to, but also just check my own privilege on when we're actually talking about burnout. Well, we actually, Kristen and I hear from a lot of women who are in the service industry, for instance, who felt Mm. a little left out when we did our conversations on the concepts and lean in a couple years ago. And so I was wondering if you have any advice for some of those women who feel alienated from this typical discussion of the office and of burnout that's specific to uh, the modern office workplace when they're working paycheck to paycheck maybe they're single moms or maybe they are caring for elderly parents. What would you say to some of these women? I think that's such a great point. And I want to talk more about lean in in a second, but first, so my mother is a labor and delivery nurse at a hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. She works 12 hour shifts on her feet and has done so for the past 25, 30 years, who knows what. And, you know, I'm here telling her how to negotiate and how to, you know, be assertive about her time. And the reality is in her industry, she gets the schedule once every two weeks and there's no union uh, representing her, although I've tried to ask her to organize one. <laughs> and, you know, her ability to negotiate in her mind is nil, completely none, no ability. Now, granted, she had four kids, right? One of whom is still in the nest, right? My baby sister is still a senior in high school. And so for her, the risk factors for facing not getting that paycheck is astronomical still. 
And so, you know, being your own boss or being brazen about what you want is not as simple as we spell it out in it, as, as this, this conversation alludes to. And it's not as simple as leaning in and working harder and asking for more. Um, building power is something that I, I studied and worked a lot on as a community organizer with communities that alone individually have no power. I truly and fundamentally believe that collectively we can all create power by aligning ourselves and our mutual interests with people who have diverse resources to contribute, to leverage in, to leverage our power together for what we need to be successful. And so I'm, I'm getting on my soapbox here and sounding like quite the labor organizer, but really what I'm saying is that no matter where you're starting from, you have power over where you put your money, where you decide to, what businesses you decide to, you know, serve with your financial power. You have power over where you show up, how you use your voice, what you dare to say or not say. And while no one can tell you that being assertive is the only and right way to be, it is a tool that I want all women to have in their toolbox. I want all women to feel empowered, to feel capable for choosing mindfully when they want to be assertive and not to feel like we are totally um, without ownership of our own lives because that's a really scary place to be. And I've been there um, because when you ask for what you need, some people might say no. And, uh, and I guarantee you, if you ask enough people for the right kind of help or what you actually need, the world changes, the world delivers in a kind of amazing way. When I was leaving my ex-boyfriend, I had no money. I was totally financially screwed in that relationship. We were living above my means and it was completely impossible for me to sublet out one of the two bedrooms in our apartment because of the nature of the dramatic and really ugly way that that we split and that police were involved. You know, this was a scary, scary time in my life. I had no money. My parents, frankly, have no money. And while I'm privileged to have a great education and at the time had a good job, I found myself basically homeless. And when I had the courage to be vulnerable with the people I trusted who loved me, they gave me a roof over my own head, right? I could crash with a friend and I basically crashed with friends for six months living out my lease and then uprooting my life with a whole bunch of credit card debt to come to DC to make something else of my life. And a year and a half, two years later, I started boss stop to help others do the same. And over that year and a half to two years, I found myself happier, healthier and wealthier than ever because I had the courage to assert myself and decide, no, I am not going to let my life continue on with me in the passenger seat. So, Emily, uh, I'm feeling, first of all, very empowered <laughs> right now to leave the studio and go take over the world. So thank you for that. Um, but also, before we leave, just wanted to know if you had any parting thoughts for our listeners and, of course, where they can go to find out more about you and Bossed Up. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for having me. 
uh, Kristen and Caroline. It's been such a pleasure. And I'm so jazzed about the fact that we are going to be talking together again in real life, IRL, at South by Southwest. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm stoked to have been invited by you two to present together. And I can't wait for that awesome conversation. But also for folks who want to learn more about Boss Up, get some free resources, join our community of courage, and start taking charge of your life right now, you can head over to bossedup.com. And you can learn more about me at emilyaries.com as well. All right. Well, Emily, thank you again so much. And look forward to seeing you in Austin. to Emily for talking to Caroline and me because Caroline I feel like so much of what Emily had to say resonates with the research that you and I have found in terms of gendered patterns of how we work and in terms of that burnout conversation women being even just less likelier to take breaks Yeah, there was this Captivate Network study that found that men in the workplace are 25% more likely than ladies to take personal breaks. And that includes being more likely to go take a walk, more likely to stop and eat lunch, more likely to just take a break and let your brain drip out your ears. Yeah, um, so I'm a contributing writer for Refinery29.com, Caroline, and they had an internal campaign recently that has <laughs> stuck in my brain because it was encouraging all the employees, which it's a mostly female company, but encouraging all the employees to take their lunch breaks because of this kind of research where it's mm-hmm. so important for us to take those breaks but we tend not to do that. Well, yeah, because speaking of Refinery29, thank you for setting me up. I'm just going to like hit that off on the, on the. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Okay. Just lobbed that softball over to you. Thank you. I don't even know if, did you, I don't even know if you knew you did it. I, I didn't. Oh, cool. Well, but speaking of Refinery29, they did have an article talking about this whole culture uh, and constant state of busyness. So it was an advice column kind of thing. And the writer is telling the woman who had written in, that this serves as being this busyness serves as a declaration of worth for a lot of people. And she says, you know, it's no wonder that we're sort of in the midst of this cultural kind of across the board need to work all the time because she talks about how, yes, the economy is sluggish, the job market's tough and everyone who's managed to stay steadily employed feels lucky. So you feel like you've got to bust your butt. You feel like you need to work all the time, be available 24 seven and sort of allow those boundaries between your public and private day and night lives to blur. But she says, the advisor says that this is really just helping perpetuate the problem. You are helping contribute to this new unattractive standard of busyness. And she says, so what to do? Keep resisting. And and I feel like Yes, absolutely. We should resist. We should establish boundaries. We should not encourage our coworkers to work until X o'clock in the morning. And perhaps take more advantage of, say, email delay receipt features in your Outlook. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and I mean, granted, you know, we do have to keep in mind that different people like to work different schedules. However, when you do find yourself falling into this, like, oh, I worked 16 hours yesterday thing. It is time to do a couple of things. One, establish boundaries for yourself. Do try to take breaks. Um, 
But also, too, ask yourself how much of that work you did in the 16-hour period is actually quality work. And that can help you maybe prioritize your time a little better. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that a project will take you as long as you give it. Yeah. And one thing that I've started doing fairly recently, Caroline, is I time myself. I usually give myself like... 15 to 20 minute increments of time. And I just set the timer on my phone. There's probably a handy app for all of this. And I I'm just doing is. it like the longhand way. But I bet it's like $6. <laughs> it's probably, I mean, who knows? I mean, $6, that's, that's, that's a lot of money for an app. That's a good sandwich right Ooh, there. Yeah. Um, but I, it helps focus me and pay closer attention to how much time I'm taking to do uh, different kinds of things. And it has raised my attention on things that I have been sort of frivolous over or just like taken unnecessary time with. Um, and all of this is important because of that issue of burnout. Yeah. And this is something that Emily and her group bossed up really focus on because she really had to battle her own burnout. And it can lead to things like cynicism, depression, lethargy. And it happens a lot of the time when you just sort of feel out of control. And I know that I've experienced that when I worked at that newspaper years ago now. I mean, I didn't care. I didn't want to get promoted. I didn't want to take the next step up the ladder. And that is a huge warning sign. If you aren't even interested in what you're doing, the company you work for, and you're not interested in pursuing bigger, better opportunities with that job, whatever it is, that's a giant warning sign that perhaps, A, maybe your job is just wrong for you, but B, maybe you're burned out. Yeah, I mean, because the fact of the matter is most of us don't like our jobs. <laughs> at least at some point, Deloitte put out a, a survey not too long ago, which found 80 percent of employees report job dissatisfaction. Yeah, I mean, and, and go figure. Yeah. And and of course, this culture of busyness and the fact that you can technically be reached any time and can be doing your job and interacting and building your personal brand and networking all the time if you want to. Twitter exists. LinkedIn exists. When when should we ever stop working? <sighs> uh, I just like a little sweaty palms thinking about that. But shoots and ladders. I know. But um one of my personal faves, Brene Brown, who writes a lot for O magazine, which one of my favorite publications in the world, uh, talks about how for women, there's this myth that we're supposed to do it all and do it perfectly. And she says that saying no, whether it's to work or to friends or whatever, saying no cues a chorus of inner shame gremlins. There's an image for you. Uh, thoughts like, who do you think you are? You're not a very caring mother or friend or colleague. But but she goes on to say that daring to set those boundaries is about having the courage to love ourselves, even when we risk disappointing others. And so that then ties in, I would think, to this issue of self-care we always hear about, because not only setting boundaries and learning how to say no and learning how to tell yourself it's okay to say no and that you will still be liked or respected, but then taking it a step further and saying, okay, now that I've set this boundary, now that I'm not going to work a 16-hour day, I'm going to try to work smarter, what am I going to do to make sure I don't lose my mind? 
Yeah, I think it's really fascinating how uh, the conversations around self-care and the media coverage around self-care have really accelerated in the past year or so. And to me, it's just putting validating language around this idea of, yeah, taking a little bit of time off and reframing it away from the idea that doing so is selfish or lazy. Right. I know my boyfriend and I have conversations all the time. He's in a creative field. Uh, he works all the time. And again, he's totally living under that whole thing of uh, your work is going to take up how much time you give it. Um, and we talk all the time about how like almost spiritually stunting it is to not remember or give yourself time to do rewarding things for yourself. So for instance, like he's really slammed with his work right now, but he made sure last night to take time to play music with a friend and try to write music and like just see a friend and be creative. He, for my birthday this past year, gave me a bunch of art supplies. I haven't used them. They're sitting in the corner of my room and I look at them and I'm like, I would I would just love to doodle or paint or something, but I don't give myself the time. I am my worst boss. Well, and and Caroline, you know what? My my self-care last night was taking the time, even though I also was slammed with just all sorts of things. I'm busy. Have I mentioned <laughs> that? Have I told you I'm really busy? Um, but I took the time to drink a beer and watch an episode of Unreal because... <laughs> Yeah, I'm addicted. Nice. No, I, Conger, I did the same thing. I, well, I had a glass of champagne. I miss beer. You're a little classier. I, no, I assure you it was Cook's. Um, I assure you it was probably cheaper than whatever beer you were drinking. Um, so I, I took time to have a glass of champagne and illegally download an episode of Downton Abbey that had already moved off of PBS because I was not fast enough because I also am busy and am apparently too busy to watch Downton Abbey. And uh, it was so nice. It was so nice to take that little bit of time. And I'm not advocating that everybody get wasted and watch a period piece on PBS to, like, you know, make yourself feel better. But that's something you see a lot in literature around self-care, that it's different for everyone. And apparently Kristen and I are slowly morphing into the same person. And, and that's OK. But for you, maybe it's going rock climbing and doing something active and outside. Or maybe it really is just taking a nap, turning off your cell phone. There's a whole range of things that can help you, man or woman, learn to reset and feel better so that you can go back to work and do better work. Well, thanks again so much to Emily Aries for coming on the show and sharing all of her boss up wisdom with us. And now we want to hear from you. We want to know if any of those issues resonated with your work situation as well. Momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. So I have a letter here from Joe in response to our episode on infertility. And I just want to say quickly to preface this, that we have heard from a lot of both men and women on this very sensitive topic, something that can be really hard for a lot of couples out there. So I just want to say thank you to everybody who's written in about fertility issues that they have undergone. So this is from Joe. And Joe says... 
In 2000, we had been trying to get pregnant for a year with no luck. I was 36 and my wife 40. We were living outside the perimeter, a little north of Atlanta. What luck, as it's the infertility center of the southeast. Our OBGYN ran all the tests on my wife, and surprise, she's just fine. I mean, the media does portray this as always related to female biology. So living near an infertility center, and the issue probably due to my biology, the way should be smooth and within sight, right? No. There are many specialists for women's reproductive problems, but for men, go find a urologist, a generalist. All of them list fertility as part of their practice, but few do more than dabble. They would run the same battery of tests, look at me and say, I don't know, you need someone more skilled than me, and no, I can't recommend anyone. It took no less than 12 urologist visits to identify someone who truly specialized and practices. None of the previous 11 were honest that they dabbled until they got a visit fee. Next was testing. Several labs turned me away because none of the technicians wanted to handle the fluids involved even in a lab setting. One told me it was disgusting. Many treated me like I was a weirdo playing some game. Two told me that they couldn't help me because the sample needed to be analyzed within 15 minutes of collecting and there was nowhere on the premises for collection. A hospital with no bathrooms? Question mark. Finally, I raised a stink, getting the attention of the manager in one hospital, and they were appalled at my treatment. Tests were run, root causes found, and a baby girl arrived in late 2003. Yay! Note that this took three years to resolve. It was the most frustrating, humiliating, and ostracizing experience of my life, closely followed by a breast cancer scan as a male. Another story for another time. While 90% of the time, the way for women is against the current, this is one where it's against everyone. The stigma of having a doctor subtly grin when you reveal that you're infertile or the callous treatment by the labs needed for a diagnosis was horrendous and marginalizing. I feel for anyone of any biology going through this. So thank you so much for sharing your story, Joe, and congrats on that baby girl back in 2003. Well, I've got a letter here from Jessica about icing your vulva, which is one of our new catchphrases. She writes, I just listened to Very Close Veins, which was about varicose veins, and just had to tell you that icing your vulva is actually a thing. I don't know about it in relationship to varicose veins, but among pregnant women and new moms, it's often discussed as a relieving treatment for immediately after a vaginal delivery. The trick is to take a maxi pad, soak it in witch hazel, and stick it in the freezer for a few hours before wearing it. I didn't end up doing this myself as my delivery wound up being a C-section, but I heard lots of moms raving about the awesome relief it provides, particularly if they suffered from tears during delivery. So, Jessica, thank you for that insight. I had no idea. And, I mean, I just wonder if it works for, you know, if you've just, like, had a long day, you know, need want a refreshing relief. Glass of Pinot Grigio, a little ice pack on the vulva. There you go. Maybe maybe something from the Oprah Winfrey Network on television. Or uh, Gilmore Girls yeah. binge. Just whatever really helps you relax. There you go. Well, listeners, we want to hear what you have to say. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about Emily Ayers and Bossed Up, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. 
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 